and welcome to the 40 Drinks Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie McLaughlin. You know, sometime in the years around our 40th birthday, many of us start to feel what I've started calling the ick. Like some part of our life no longer fits and you don't know what to do about it. I know that was true for me and I fought against it, which only made it a messier process. But having 40 drinks with 40 people over the course of a year helped me escape the influence of that ick. On this podcast, I welcome you to tap into my stories and experience, as well as those of my guests, to help you emerge from your own ick and maybe even avoid some of the mistakes we made along the way. My mission is to make it common cultural knowledge that there is a transition most of us face around age 40, and then showcase so many versions of that transition that every single person approaching or recently turned 40 with dread in their heart knows that they are not alone. Today, my guest is Renee Jones, who told me she often thought the first line of a book on her life would read, when I turned 40, I lost my mother and began to find myself. Hi, Renee. It is so great to finally get you here on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It has been a wait, hasn't it? I have to thank you for being so kind and thoughtful. I have canceled on you a number, a numerous times, and I'm admitting (laughs) that because you and I were connecting through the fall. I was dealing with like headaches and with some, some sort of weird stuff. And it turned out that since you and I have last spoken, surprise, I had spinal surgery. (laughs) God, that's no excuse. I mean, come on. But you were so, so kind to me. I canceled a couple of times. I think once I canceled like at the moment and you just, you were so kind to me. So firstly, I want to thank you for that kindness and consideration because we all do need to be kind with one another, but you were exceptionally thoughtful with me. So I I hope you're feeling better. I am. It's, it's so funny. I've never had surgery before. I'm somebody who's never broken bones, never really had any major traumas. I I was in a few car accidents here and there, but nothing Mm. enormous. And so I, I had this surgery and what was so bizarre was, well, a couple of things were bizarre. One, nobody knew that I needed spinal surgery because I didn't really have any of the symptoms that they would think you'd have for having Mm -hmm. a situation so advanced. I had two surgeons in a week tell me, the first one said, you're a ticking time bomb. And the second one said, no, 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 you're not a ticking time bomb. You're walking around with a live grenade in your pocket. I was like, oh, oh, you know, tomato, tomato. That's so much better. He goes, yeah, you never know when it's going to go off. He's like, you know, you're not on a countdown. So anyway, so I, I needed the surgery. But so since the surgery, I, I have always had kind of, I call it like Rice Krispies. I've always had crunchiness inside mm-hmm. my neck, kind of like mm-hmm. I move my head and it's like. <laughs> and all of that was gone from the moment I woke up. And yet the healing of the the incision and the, you know, the, the where they sort of did the work, it's, it's been a really bizarre experience for me. Now that we've gotten that behind us and we're thrilled to be here together, tell me a little bit about where our story begins. It begins about the time I turned 40, really, mm-hmm. because in my 40th year, I lost my mother mm-hmm. and it was two months and two days from the day she went to the hospital until she was gone. She'd been 
you know, very strong all of her life, never in the hospital except having babies. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know, but it turned out that she had a brain tumor and it turned out that brain surgery was the easy part. Oh God. <laughs> and the effects of chemo and all of that, unfortunately shortened her life. Yeah. We sat around for a couple of days after it was like, how did we get here? Yeah. You know? So it was, it was not sudden, but it was with my experience in hospitals and my brother had is a pastor. So he had been in hospitals. We kind of knew that this was potentially where it was going. And yeah. in the last week I knew for certain that she yep. was never going to leave there. So yeah. yeah, it was, it was hard Yeah, because you know, she had was just about a month short of her 66th birthday. Oh, so she was, and her mother and father both lived well into their 90s. So we expected her to still be around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I lost my dad about uh, eight years ago and, and he died three days after his 66th birthday. So, and his mother died at 92 a couple of years earlier. So yeah, I, I get it. How could that possibly be? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah because we talk about the 40th birthday and how this is a, a period of transition. And, and my goodness, that's, that's a, a real easy sort of pin to put in the ground to there's a befores and afters. But before we go on, tell me a little bit about your mom. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with her. It was a good home, you know, intact family of origin with lots of in-laws uh, and, and family. My grandmother had nine brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So I still have cousins scattered everywhere mm -hmm. and we still stay in contact. But as mother daughter relationships go, I mean, we were, we were okay. We were fine. Mm -hmm. I did not feel that I had permission to just be myself. Mm. You know, when we were growing up, she would, she would make herself a dress and then make me a small one. Okay. So it was just like it in the same color and yep. uh, mini me and everything. Mini me. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I remember her telling me when I was getting married and I was trying to pick out my cutlery, knife forks, that sort of thing. My mother and I chose the same pattern. And I thought, huh? Cause we're about as opposite as you can get. Okay. She was, she was, you know, very engaging with lots of people. She liked to wear really bright colors and patterns and all that. And I'm like, I just want to be over here. I like tailored traditional clothes. I mean, yeah. you can see I've got on a, a yeah. dark blouse and a gray sweater. This helped me a lot as a chaplain because I could blend in wherever mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not be obtrusive. And my mother never would have managed that. She taught English in high school and she would become Madame Defarge when she was teaching A Tale of Two Cities. You know, that was just her personality, much mm -hmm. more expressive. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was a little hard for me to mm -hmm. kind of go in the wake of that. Yeah. And because I, there were so many things I would have chosen differently. Like what? Well, clothes for a start. Okay. She wanted me to dress a little more flamboyantly. I was like, no, 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 no. And I am the only person that was born with red hair. Okay. Everyone else is brown or black hair. And I have red hair and green eyes, which is basically the most elusive combination. Yeah, it's rare. <laughs> it's like 1% of the population has red hair and green eyes. More have mm -hmm. blue. Mm -hmm. My entire family has blue eyes. I was already standing out. Yeah. 
Yeah. And all my little friends were blondes and brunettes and that sort of thing. And I just wanted to fit in. Mm. I didn't want to stand out. And she wanted me to stand out. It was a kind of a pull and, yeah. and tug sort of thing. And I mean, we got along very well most of the time. And I know she loved me. Mm -hmm. But we just disagreed on a lot of things. Were you able to draw that boundary with her ever of, you know, you're you and I respect that, but I'm me and you have to respect that? I, I did try that a few times. It, yeah. I could tell it hurt her. Her view was imitating your mother as the highest form of praise. Yeah. But sure, there were a few times like I decided I had an opportunity and I decided to take it when I had finished my first year of teaching and I got an opportunity to go work in Wales mm -hmm. in the UK. Mm -hmm. And she was like, well, what about your career? I said, who knows where this will take me? Right. And it was the probably the single most impactful experience I have ever had. Mm. It changed my life in so many wonderful ways. Mm -hmm. When I finished, it was a two-year commitment. And I came back to the States and I was going to grad school. And I met a guy. I got another opportunity to return because I had told him, do not fall in love with me because I have to go back to Wales first. Okay. I told him. He was <laughs> fair warned, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got another opportunity to return and I accepted the job at like eight o'clock in the morning by phone. Mm -hmm. By noon, we were engaged. And the, the funny part of that story was he was trying to ask me the day before but we got caught out in the rain and I didn't want, you know, for us to get soaked or for him to get, catch a cold or whatever. He missed his opportunity. So he had to wait until the next day. But yeah. at least I can say, you knew I was going to Wales right, for two right, right. years. And my right. mother was like, well, I guess you're not going now. I was like, no, he I'm understands. bringing my husband with me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I went single. We didn't you get went... married until I got back. Okay. It was just a... It was just a, a commitment, a promise. Yes. Nice. Yes. And he came to visit me a few times and it was, and she loved him in the end. It was great. She was like, I wouldn't leave my husband to be to go right. work for two years in a foreign country. So anytime you tried to assert your individuality or your independence, you felt like you were hurting your mother. Like, like she was hurt yeah. by that. Yeah. Because she just wanted... And having a degree in counseling, I now understand this, her insecurity was more than I recognized. And that would have been affirmation for who she was. Right. And I would point out, look, I am as loyal as you are. I love family and I am nostalgic and I want our life to be like this forever. Right. I tried to point out ways that I was so much more like her. Yeah. And that, that was helpful. Okay. But she would also say, do not counsel me. Yes, mother. Sorry. Don't use any of that to. black magic on me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, having, having experienced it many, many times, I was with her the moment she passed away. How was that? It's the one final gift I could give her. I mean, she was with me the day I was born. Sure. So I, I knew my brother, although he's done a lot of death as well. Mm -hmm. It's just different for boys. I think it is. We knew that it was coming. We just didn't know when. Mm -hmm. And we did the sensible thing. Like we'll do it in shifts. And I took the overnight shift because I knew that it wouldn't be that long. And I didn't want my father to have to sit with that. And I didn't want to make my brother do that. 
and I was holding her hand and telling her all the good things. And, you know, she passed very peacefully. Nice. Yeah. You know, turning 40 is an interesting thing to begin with, right? You don't have to meet people's expectations in the same way as you did before. So it was sort of a double thing. It was like, okay, I don't, I can just be myself. And sometimes that works out really well. And sometimes my friends are like, okay, do not wear that again. Because I just don't have an eye for fashion. <laughs> and worse, I don't care. It's not something that that makes me go, oh, I want to wear this. Mm. And the things I do feel that way about, people are like, seriously, Paisley's are so gone. <laughs> I am a child of the 80s, and I uh, love all of that preppy thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am as well, and I do as well. You said you weren't like your mother. Were you like someone else instead? Well, I have my father's body. Okay. Right? And I even have his wrinkles now, which is really annoying. But I, I think I got my mother's heart and her mother's heart. So I think that's where I'm more like her in terms of caring for people, having the desire to do that well rather than just do it. Because, you know, some people are not very good at that. Yeah. My father's not good at that. My brother and I talk about, yes, I got our father's backside. You got our mother's backside. But you got my father's ankles. <laughs> and I got her ankles. Now, if I had to make a choice between the two, I'd take what I got. <laughs> Fair enough. That's funny. And yeah. I think, you know, there are things you get from your parents intellectually, emotionally. Yep spiritually, yeah. physically, yeah. and you make the best of the choices. Yeah. My mother, I, I look in the, in the face, I, I look very much like my mother, but she said I got my dad's legs. So mm -hmm. when I was a kid, she always used to dress me in short skirts and stuff like that. Cause you know, it, nice she, legs, right. She wanted to live vicariously through my legs. <laughs> Cause she's, yeah. what is she? Five, three. And my dad was, you know, six, two. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. She thought he was dreamy, you know, as tall, skinny, sandy haired guy. So yeah. So she, she used to say when I was a teenager, she'd, she'd live vicariously through my legs. So yeah. Was, yeah. I'm yeah, only so five foot three. I understand <laughs> that. And my husband has strict instructions. If I ever break my legs, they're supposed to add at least an inch. Excellent. Good plan. <laughs> Very good plan. <laughs> After your mom passes, mm -hmm. you said to me that you begin to explore. Tell me what that means. Well, you know, when mom passes away, the family system kind of falls apart because she's usually the hub of the wheel, isn't she? Mm -hmm. So I thought uh, my brother was very happy to get out of the family Christmas thing. He could do it with his family and I could do it with my husband's. And it, it was like, okay, what else do we want to do differently? What else do we want to do? I started writing a novel and I got an agent about the time 50 shades of gray came out when mm -hmm. everything had to be mommy porn to be picked up. Okay. And I said, when 50 shades of gray fades to black, my character might have an opportunity. Okay. <laughs> and by the time that happened, I'd moved on to something else, but I did yeah. write a book. Mm -hmm. It's a nonfiction. What's really eating you okay. to go with my coaching. I just started looking at different ways of doing life than what I had always done. Mm -hmm. And I had the freedom to do that. And I discovered, oh, you mean I don't have to be overweight for the rest of my life? 
huh, that's a new concept for my family. So actually, when I was turning 50, I had been on the diet yo-yo for like 40 years. Clearly, I was not very good at it. Right, right. Or you were very good at it. I was very good at the yo-yo. Yes, I was. Right, right. (laughs) But I eventually decided to address that. Mm -hmm. And I'm the kind of person who really needs some external accountability to do something for myself. So I hired a coach to help me and it worked beautifully. And I lost the weight and I lost a lot of other emotional baggage along the way, which was more important. Can you give me an example? Sure. I would never have been on a stage. I was too scared of public speaking or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I never would have kept the weight off because I was an emotional eater. So when I had some emotional stuff going on, I went to food to soothe myself. And I got disconnected from that enough so that now 11 years since I lost my weight, I haven't gained it back. In fact, I'm slightly lighter today than I was then. I worked out my relationship with my father, okay, who kind of lost his compass after my mother died. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's okay. I would have taken a lot of things personally rather than, oh, we just disagree on this. I would think it's my fault. I've done mm. something wrong. I'm awful. All mm. of that kind of down the, the spiral. Yep. Yep. And I no longer do that, which is freeing for me and very helpful for others. Yeah. How did you stop those things? How did you identify them? How did you work through them? How did you stop? I kept my coach for a long time. Okay. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. I I found it helpful to think about it this way. When I faced my stuff, I no longer needed to stuff my face. What a fabulous line. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wow. Okay. But we would just we just worked through I mean we'd meet like once a month and she'd say, What's going on? And I would tell her and then we would take it apart and I would tell her what I was struggling with and she would unpick it, unwind it for me help me unwind it. And then she'd say, now, why was that a problem? I have no idea. Why was that a problem all that time? Yeah. And I credit that with actually getting a TEDx talk because I had the courage to do it. Back to your stage fright. Back to my stage fright. Conquer that at some point. Yeah. Well, we're always a little nervous. Sure. But it's like, once you get into it, it's much easier, but I wouldn't have done that at all. Yeah. I think it, it comes to be about accepting yourself for who you are and what yeah. you have to offer. And okay, if you need more than that, work on that. You can continue to grow into your best self. We don't have to stay as we are. And that's refreshing. Yeah. You said a, a moment ago that when your mom passed, you started to feel a freedom to do things differently. Why is it you think you didn't feel that freedom until after she was gone? I think it's history and the voice in the back of your head. There was a time when I was in college that I was meant to go do a summer job. I think it was in North Carolina. I was trying for Alaska, but it turned out to be North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, you can't go. Why? I wouldn't make enough money for college but this is such a great opportunity. And she said, yes, it is. You can't afford to do it. Ouch. There were various times when I was trying something like I started writing stories when I was in high school. And she's like, that's great. Authors don't make money. You're going to have to get a real job. 
So I became an English teacher, of course, what most frustrated writers do. And I tacked onto that journalism. I wrote for magazines for years, Mm. freelance. Sure. So I think it was when I had a, a grand idea, there was this voice of reason and duty. Reasons being kind. Sounds like it was a very squashing voice, dream squashing voice. Well, there's that. I think her motive was pure yeah. and I can, I can give her that. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, a dream squash in many yeah. ways. Yeah, this is something I've run across before. The concept of the first adulthood and the second adulthood. And in our first adulthood, we do, we, we follow the path of the shoulds and, and, and we've got all these people who are older and wiser than us offering us advice and, and uh-huh. giving us our shoulds. By and large, I, I feel like those people, they only want the best for us and that they want us to be, you know, happy and successful. But mostly I think they want us to be safe. Yes. Hi, we'll get back to the conversation in just a minute. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine recently and she was going through some rough stuff and I recommended a previous episode of the podcast that was, had some relevance to her situation and she loved it. So that got me thinking, if you've got an issue that you're facing or something you're going through, drop me a line and I can recommend an episode or two that might be relevant for what you're experiencing. Think of it as a personal podcast prescription. I'd love to make one for you. DM me on social, on Facebook or Instagram, or email me at stephanie at 40drinks.com. Don't forget to spell out the word 40. All right, back to the show. And in one of my very early conversations, we talked about, actually a friend of my husband's was on the podcast, and we talked about how there was a real demarcation between his parents, like what the world was like when his parents were in their 20s and, and what the world was like when he was in their, in his 20s. And he's a, a few years younger than me. I would put him squarely in an elder millennial kind of age range. But it was like, you know, they they wanted all these things for him, but they didn't understand how the world was changing. And so the shoulds were very old school. They were very, you know, putting him in a place that that almost didn't even exist anymore. Um, so it sounds like a lot of your mom's guidance and and recommendations were really from a from a fear based place. Mm. Do you think that's true? Oh, yes. I mean, they told me if you get a degree to teach, you can work for the rest of your life. Right. right. Well, I got it. I have a lifetime certification to teach. Sure. I just teach in a different way now. Yeah. Their, their motive was you're going to need a job. Right. And teaching or nursing, there are a couple of those that are just reliable jobs to have. Yeah. Last season, I talked to a woman named Tara who was very much like me in that she came from a family of engineer types, of science math types, and and her parents directed her to go get an engineering degree because then she would always have a, she would always have a job. It would always be a well-paying job. She'd make money. She'd be successful. And she, you know, like me was much more creative. I could never have gotten myself through the math 
requirements to become an engineer, but she did. And, you know, I think it was right around 40, like completely broken down and a mess because she was just living the wrong life. Yeah. You know, I think I look back on teaching. I was good at that. I'm a natural teacher. High school English and journalism may not be the best use, although that's a thoroughly respectable job. And it gives you, as they said, you'll have time off in the summer with your children. It's practical. And I think about what I tried to do with those students, what I did most in Wales, what I have done as a chaplain, what I'm doing now as a coach. It's all the same thing. It's like, okay, what's going on for you? How can we heal what's not healthy so that you can be your best? And if that's weight loss, great. If it's self-sabotage, great. What do you need that isn't working for you? You even that. brought that framework that to to teaching high school kids? I always liked having good conversations with the student. You know, when they were struggling emotionally, they wouldn't do well in my class. If, if you've got them, if they're on some kind of balance, they do better in their scores. How long did you teach for? I taught basically for three years. I taught one year before I went to Wales, two years in a private school when I was going through grad school. And... Sunday school forever. Fair enough. Okay. So teaching was not a long career for you. You didn't, you didn't no. last in that very long. The Welsh thing changed everything for me. And what was the Welsh program? It was a, a two-year appointment based very much like the Peace Corps, but just in a more spiritual setting. And I coordinated activities for a Christian center the first time. And the second one, I went to open a counseling center in a church there. So I was there to set things up, get it going, and hand it off. Okay. Okay. What kind of church? Those were both Baptist churches. The first one was a Welsh-speaking Baptist church and an English-speaking Baptist church joined together. And the, the old Welsh chapel became the community center. Okay. And the other one was an up-and-coming Baptist church in a much smaller village, but they had a fair number of people. They recognized the need for counseling, whether it be, you know, Christian based or not. And it didn't matter to me. So when you came back from Wales, did you go back to school? Did you go to shift a career? Tell me about that. Both. Yeah. Okay. Between the two, mm -hmm. I came to get a degree in a master's degree in counseling. That's what they told me they needed. I was like, I can do that. And yep. this sounds great. And after the second one, I came back to get married because he'd been waiting for two years. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so then it was, okay, what do we do now in this general vein? Mm -hmm. And chaplaincy presented itself. Only problem was I burned out on death very quickly during that residency. Sure. In fact, my buddies called me the chaplain of death because every time I was on call, people died all over the hospital. <laughs> my last shift, I was there overnight and seven people died. Wow. Really? And I was talking to someone that said, it's because you're actually good at it. This is not something I want to be good at. And I actually came out of it for a while because it was so stressful for me. In addition to dealing with those things, it was a residency. They were working on our emotional stuff. Yeah. They just weren't very kind about it. Interesting. How Interesting. So? It felt like a beating. And that program I was told had got better. And initially 
what it had been was really bad. So I'm, I just can't imagine what that would be. Yeah. Holy cow. So my husband was like, hmm, we're going to try to have children. I do not want you carrying a baby with this much stress. Right. So I came out of it for a period of time mm -hmm. and then went back into it later. I worked for a service the second time. So we had a hospice. We had hospitals. We had a behavioral health hospital, which was really fun. Mm -hmm. And I said, please tell me they don't die very often. He said, they don't die very often. I said, okay, <laughs> I can do that. All right. So I want to shift back into your 40s and your exploration. Tell me how you see or characterize your transition after your mom passed through your 40s? I think I came into myself. I was still kind of flapping a bit, partly because ultimately we were not able to have children together, which was a heartbreak. And I was still trying to figure out the whole chaplain thing. I eventually got it. After I, I sat with my mother dying, mm -hmm. I thought, well, if I can do that, right, I can sit with somebody else. And I got much better at it after that and balancing those. But it was look after yourself. You have to heal those pieces if you're going to help others heal. I know a lot of people really want to help others and we all go into things because that's what we want to work on. I wanted to be consistently working on it rather than just getting comfortable with where I'd been and what I'd done. Yeah. So I kept working on it. I'm still working on things. When you say that, I love for people listening to the podcast, It, a lot of this sounds, to someone who's not familiar with some of the concepts, it sounds a little esoteric. So when you say you were working on it, can mm -hmm. you give me a clear picture of what that means and how? what tools did you use and how did you do the work? I think some of it you can do on your own. Mm-hmm. And some of it, you need some objectivity around. Mm -hmm. Initially, I spent a couple of years just working with a therapist, just trying to dig out some of the infection that had settled in. Mm -hmm. So it was talk therapy. Even though I was trained in this, I thought, this doesn't really work that well for me. Mm -hmm. Because we talked a lot. And I learned some things about self-esteem, boundaries, being kind but it didn't complete the circle for me. So when I found a good coach to help me with the weight loss stuff, I recognized in her, I was like, you are more than the average coach. You've mm -hmm. done this. You've worked on this. I need you to show me how to do that. So we would meet and in between, I would read books. I would study different things. I spent so much time on my walk in the morning, listening to books and podcasts that called me to something better. Because in the end, what I wanted was a bigger life than I had created for myself. Mm -hmm. I had become very insular. You know, the pandemic, oh my word, I loved that. <laughs> because I'm basically an introvert and I could easily be a hermit. Yeah. But you got to know when to go out play well with others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? So I, I work on that. I continue to work on that because I really like solitude. Sure. There's no risk in it. That's true. That's true. But there's also value in it. So mm -hmm. it is finding the balance of when to recharge and when to share that energy. So even now, Every other year since 1986, apart from 2020, which really annoys me, I go back to Wales. 
Oh, nice. I have friends there who still want to see me and it's lovely. And it's also reconnecting. It's mm -hmm. that family connection. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me going out and doing good things. Because when I'm there, it's like, what can we do while we're here? Is there any way I can be helpful? Either to the church or to a school or a ladies group, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. When you said you realized you wanted a bigger life than you had previously created, what were the things that you wanted? What did a bigger life mean? I'm not sure I know for certain, right? But during those years that I was essentially unemployed, I did a lot of volunteer things, but I also learned how to do things like make yogurt, make cheese, do woodwork. I learned how to mediate. That was one of my volunteer things. I learned how to do a book interview. There was a local cable station and authors would come through and we would interview them and got to meet all kinds of really fun, wonderful people, even names you might know. I got really good at talking to people. Mm-hmm and getting information from them to share with others. I, I wanted to utilize that more than for a TV show. I wanted to hone my counseling and coaching skills because I wasn't using that. I mean, I was a chaplain, but that's kind of like rapid therapy. Sure. And half the time people don't want to see you. Right. And in a lot of hospitals, the trifecta is someone who is actually awake, coherent, and in their room. <laughs> and that doesn't always happen. Right. I thought there's got to be something more that I can do with this, which became coaching and became speaking. So it always feels braggy when I say this, but I have had clients on six continents and several islands. Hmm. Right. The scientists and the penguins on Antarctica don't seem to be very interested. You won't get that seventh continent. Ah, I no. do my best. I do my best. <laughs> That's some pretty targeted marketing yeah. you need there. Yeah. <laughs> but that opens lots of opportunities. Speaking mm -hmm. opens opportunities. The TEDx, mm -hmm. oh my word. They're still watching that, right? Hmm. And very much to fulfill what I believe is my purpose in life, and that is to help someone heal their heart. Yes. And the most amazing moment when you see it happen. You know, their face shifts or they come back and they're different. It's just to be that vessel. And okay, that, that makes sense for sure. How do you help someone heal their heart? What does that look like? It depends like? on the person, doesn't it? If they have struggled with their weight, there's always a reason for it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, most things that we look at as comfort food, there's a reason for it. There's some connection that we make between that food and this feeling we're having. For me, that was peanut butter. And peanut butter really? is a perfectly lovely food if you don't eat it in the quantities that I was eating it. <laughs> it's really helpful if you can think, okay, this is the food. Why am I so connected to it? And you do that by thinking about when did I, do I first remember having it when it did it for me? And what was around me at the time? For me, the peanut butter was a direct connection to my nan. My grandmother and I were tight around chocolate and peanut butter, hopefully together. <laughs> but when my mother died, 
I all but crawled into my peanut butter jar Mm -hmm. because I needed that connection. When my grandmother died, I didn't want to do that because I'd already gained a good 20, 30 pounds before that. Mm -hmm. And I realized it was a direct connection to her because she's the person who always gave me love and encouragement. Mm. And I was looking for that. And once I realized she's not actually in the jar, it's just this memory I have of something we shared. Yeah. So I had to find a way to get that love and encouragement in a different way. Mm. And where did you find it instead? Well, Mr. Jones is a very good font of that. (laughs) I just have to ask him occasionally, right? Okay. There are friends who are very good at at encouraging me. And I can phone them up and say, okay, I need to be petted. Pat me on the head. Pet me. Right. It's it's being able to ask for those things that you actually need. And that's okay because we're human. Sometimes we need stuff and people can't read your mind. I just am amazed by that. Right. Finding how to get what you need in a whole different way. So you don't have to go for the food. Mm-hmm. And when you do, it soothes so much more than the food could because the food is just a substitute. It's not Mm -hmm. the thing. Do you mostly do uh, coaching around weight or is is that, is that your, your main area of, of focus? I will say that's the niche. Mm -hmm. God has a sense of humor. When I first opened my practice, my first five clients were men with marriage issues. People come for one thing, but that's not counselors call it the presenting problem. Right. And then we go look for what's really going on. I had one lady who was, who had loved flying. She loved every aspect of the experience of flying, but she had a bad experience and she was now afraid to her bones, hysterically afraid when she had to get on a plane. I mean, Mm -hmm. medication afraid of getting on Mm -hmm. a plane. And she didn't even want to talk about it. So I was like, okay, do you want to talk about this flying thing? And eventually she let me and it took about 30 minutes to release it. And she's been flying ever since. What, what was it? It was the bad experience, oh. right? But to kind of pull that apart, take it out of her present fear and look at it again, face your stuff. Right. And it, it's just a, an exercise I do that brings it out that they're not afraid anymore. They can remember being afraid, but they don't have to let that fear control them anymore. Yeah. We've all got something that's, I like to think of it as a pebble in our shoe, right? It's like just something we got to deal with or walk around or something that changes our or some spinal issue that's taking you down. Not to be pointed or anything, (laughs) (laughs) but you feel it all the same, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. 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 For about seven years, I've had, uh, I've been debilitated with some chronic health issues, Lyme disease and a thyroid issue and chronic fatigue. And yeah, yeah. So it's, so I'm, what I'm most interested to figure out and, and I haven't even started looking yet because again, it's just a month out from the surgery, but 
how much of this are we going to be able to separate? My brother asked me uh, uh, right before the surgery, he said, do you think this is the smoking gun? And I said, I don't know. It, it might be because we, I've never been able to figure out what's underneath it all. Right. And what's, you know, what's, what's the lever you could push or pull that would, that mm. would really start making big impacts. And so the, the question for me in the next couple of months is going to be, you know, the, the lack of energy, the chronic fatigue, was it, is, is it these chronic systemic issues or was it having to do with a disc pressing on my spinal column for the last decade or more. So I'm entering into a phase of kind of sleuthing how to separate apart the the physical and the symptom and these chronic yeah. systemic issues that I've been dealing with. So I have yet another mystery to solve. Both of the surgeons told me that, you know, any small trauma um, you know, a little car uh -huh. accident or, you know, uh -huh. falling down and I could be paralyzed for the rest of my life. That was no bueno because there's too many mm -hmm. stairs in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's, I, I, I don't have time for that. So it was like, let's, so yeah, we've, so we've now taken this spinal thing mm -hmm. off my plate and it'll take several months for sure to, to figure out how things settle out from there. <laughs> it, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. It's funny too, because um, that's why I'm wearing my little scarfy scarf here. I've worn scarves since I was a teenager, but mostly it's necklaces these days, uh -huh. but I have a little scar here. So I thought, let me just be polite. And not that, I mean, it's fine. It's good looking, but let me just be polite and, and keep my scar covered until it's really a little bit less obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah. So, uh, so I am uh, into my next uh, shift as well, and I have no idea where it's going to take me. But I don't think we usually do. No, and if we did, we'd probably mess it up because we'd think, "Oh, but we could just do this." Right. And the truth right. is, the adventure is worth more than that. It's scarier, yeah, but it's worth more than that. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Well, Renee, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story and, uh, and, and really being wonderfully generous with, with your story. Thank you. It was worth the wait. Thanks so much for listening today. I love that Renee really pointed out that once you start on this path of reflection and growth, that there's really no end to that journey. It's, it's really an ongoing pursuit which has been my experience as well. It's not like it's school and there's nightly homework that you have to suffer through. It's more like you find something that needs to be addressed. You figure out how you're going to address it, and then you work your way through the issue. And once you've worked your way through that issue, you go on living your life. But now that you have some understanding of the signs and the signals of what being stuck feels like or what something wrong feels like, you can identify when it's time to work on the next issue that bubbles up. And that old adage is really true. It is like peeling an onion. There are so many layers, but once you realize how much better things become when you've peeled a layer and dealt with an issue, you're more likely to want to do it the next time even though it might mean that things get icky or it's going to take some hard work to work through a piece of, you know, the, one of these issues that you're working through. But the juice is worth the squeeze, as they say. <laughs>
All right. One last thing before I go today. I have a crazy idea percolating in my brain. It's not fully baked yet, so I'm not going to go too deep into it, but I am considering adding some sort of book group episodes into the mix, looking at books around this 40 transition. So if you love to read and you want a book group with me, drop me a line. DM me on social or email me at stephanie at 40 drinks.com. And don't forget to spell out the word 40. All right. Next week, you are going to meet Birgitta Visser, who hit rock bottom at 35 and then again at 42, both coming in the midst of dysfunctional relationships. She told me she wanted to fix everyone an urge I have also personally been guilty of, but she finally figured out that she had to fix herself. Can't wait to see you next week. 40 Drinks Podcast is produced and presented by Savoir Fair Marketing Communications.